It's just a, a wonderful blessing to have like-minded churches just really 20 kilometers apart from each other. And, and Riverbend was um, very instrumental, actually, in helping Onikawa Bible Church going back 10 years now. Just their sacrifice and their generosity was a real blessing, and uh, that certainly helped uh, Onikawa Bible Church uh, and encouraged us greatly. So just wanted to, to say thanks so much, Matt and the crew that are from Riverbend. Also, just thought I might share with you um, to be praying for a family or a couple of families in Hawke's Bay. Um, some of you may have heard this past week about a young New Zealander who drowned in Australia uh, as a result of a, a surf ski incident. Um, that young man's older brother is part of our fellowship at Onikawa Bible Church and his family and the wider family, and many of you know the Bali family. Uh, they're all related through marriage to that situation. So just be praying for them. Uh, pretty devastating time. Uh, they weren't able to find his body uh, as a result of that accident. And so uh, we've got the opportunity now just to reach out to that family. Uh, the brother who's part of Onikawa Bible Church is the only believer in that family. And so we want to come alongside them and love them. But if you remember, just to be praying for them and... Uh, just that the Lord would use such a tragic situation for his glory and even to, to minister to that family in some way. So that would be much appreciated. We'll take your Bibles this morning and I invite you to turn to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. A few years ago, I read a book that had just a, a profound impact in my life. It's a book that is called The Five English Reformers written by J.C. Ryle. It's a true story of five pastors, John Hooper, Roland Taylor, Hugh Latimer, John Bradford, and Nicholas Ridley. You may not be familiar with all of those names, but they were men who, it is said that they led England from darkness to light, from ignorance to knowledge, from idolatry to truth, and from immorality to morality. However, when Queen Mary, who was a very devout Roman Catholic, when she rose to the throne, her hatred of the Protestant Reformation led to the imprisonment and ultimately the deaths of those five pastors. All of them were tied to a stake and burned to death. In fact, in the space of four years, Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary, she authorized the deaths of nearly 300 Christian leaders, all burned at the stake. What was their crime, you might even ask? They were unwilling to waver to the left or to the right of Scripture. They had an unwavering allegiance to the Word of God. And in particular, these men were convinced that their view of communion was biblical, and so they stood against the heresy of the Roman Catholic Church, and that the Roman Catholic Church would teach that the real presence of the body and the blood of Christ is in and under the bread of wine, bread and wine, a view that's known as transubstantiation. That was in their minds and also in our minds a blatant attack on the finished and the perfect and the complete work of Christ on the cross. It was almost like they were re-crucifying Jesus every time they went to Mass and the priest consecrated the elements. And so these five English reformers, they understood that if anyone held to this heretical view it would make the bread and wine idolatrous instead of illustrative. And so these preachers were courageous men. They gave up their lives for the truth. They gave up their lives for the word of God. And not only that, they went to their fiery graves with praise and with prayer on their lips. As Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were being tied up and they were being prepared for their death, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England 
as I trust shall never be put out. And those words still ring true today as the testimony and, and the influence of the gospel continues to spread throughout England. These five courageous, faithful men, they died with integrity. And we often talk about living well, don't we, as Christians, but we don't often talk about dying well as Christians. And these men certainly did. There were, there were no angry outbursts as they faced their executioners. There was no effort by them to escape. They walked, as it were, to their stakes with joy. And it's reported that most of them went just silently. And as one of them was walking to his stake, someone asked him how he felt. And he replied, never better. I'm almost at home. And the only explanation for their courage and their faith and their incredible attitude is what I like to refer to as dying grace. I think we talk about saving grace, we talk about sufficient grace and amazing grace and transforming grace, but I think this was dying grace. This is a special providential gift that God gives his people to endure such a death. Ridley said to Latimer, be of good heart, brother, for God will either dampen the fury of the flames or else strengthen us to abide in it. And God certainly did. It certainly seems that God extended to them his grace in such a tangible way that it enabled them just to cope with such a horrific death. I mean, these five courageous reformers, they didn't compromise. The word recant was never on their lips and never in their minds. And I said to you yesterday, and I'll say it again, that Christian courage is the willingness to do and to say the right thing, no matter what the cost. And that was certainly true of these five English reformers. And as we turn to the scriptures this morning, there are multiple examples of men and women who demonstrated real courage, Christian courage. Yesterday, we looked at the life of Joshua, and we saw that he led the nation of Israel into the promised land, and God told him to be strong and courageous, and he was. We didn't really follow his life after what we saw in Joshua 1 yesterday, but remember, he walked them, the whole nation, two million people, through the Jordan River towards the promised land, and then he led them in that victory as they marched around the walls of Jericho, and then he courageously had to confront sin in the nation when he called out Achan that led to the death of Achan and his family. He demonstrated lots of courage. Yes, Joshua went on to live a life that was strong and courageous. And we could talk about many others, couldn't we? We could talk about Moses and Nehemiah and David and Esther and Ruth and Stephen and Paul. All of these people in the Bible have great stories of courage. They were willing to do what is right, no matter what the cost. But this morning, I want to take us on a journey back to Babylon to what would have been about 600 600 BC, it would have been 800 years after Joshua. And so let's look at the, the book of Daniel. Babylon played host, as it were, to some of the most incredible feats of courage in biblical history. And we'll take a look at three of those courageous examples this morning. First of all, I want to take us in chapter 1 to what I've just called at the king's palace with Daniel and his three mates. And so in chapter 1, you know that we're introduced to this young man called Daniel. This guy has legendary status in the Bible. In fact, the Bible doesn't say anything negative about Daniel. He's described as a righteous man. He was a student. He was a prophet. He was a prayer warrior. He was an interpreter of dreams. He became an influential ruler. And we know that as a young man, he was full of courage. In fact, when we first meet him here in chapter 1, he's probably about 15 or 16 years old. And then as you go through the book of Daniel and you get to chapter 6 and you see him and we meet him in the lion's den, he's probably in his 80s by that point. But here in Babylon, he's there because his homeland of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel, has just been defeated by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. 
And now Daniel is living in captivity. He's in exile. Back in those days, the Babylonians were the superpower of the day. They've already defeated the Assyrians. They've already defeated the Egyptians. And now they've just defeated Judah. And by the way, this defeat was all part of God's providential plan for the nation of Israel. Because they had been living in defiance against God. They had disobeyed his commands. They had deviated to the left and to the right of Scripture, which they shouldn't have done. Their hearts at this point were evil and they were stubborn and they had failed to hear the warnings of the prophets. And so this time of exile in Babylon for the next 70 years was a time of discipline, but it was also a strategic time that God planned and preordained for them. It was a time for them to turn back to God, to turn back to Yahweh, and it was also a time for them to prepare and think about the coming Messiah, and it was a time for God, in a sense, to chart the history or the course for the Gentiles. And so as we open chapter 1, the dust is still settling after the battle. Daniel has been forced to leave his homeland. He's probably been separated by, from his family and from all of his friends. He's been deported about 1,000 kilometers from Jerusalem over to Babylon. And he's now under the leadership of a pagan government. I mean, how would you respond if you had to face this kind of trauma in your life? Would your, world, would your world fall apart? Would you collapse in anxiety and fear, become a little bit timid, become a little bit cowardly? Daniel didn't. Even though he was so young in age and even though he lacked life experience, Daniel puts on an incredible display of courage for us. Look at some of the texts with me in Daniel chapter 1 there. I want to pick it up in just verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Then king... The king, King Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5 says, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were, stand, were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So here in chapter 1, Daniel is beginning this new life in Babylon. He could have been bitter, but he doesn't seem to be. He could have been angry, but he doesn't seem to be angry. He might have been gripped with fear, but he didn't show any signs of that. I mean, can you imagine if New Zealand was conquered by Iraq or Afghanistan and all our teenagers were deported to the Middle East? Kind of what was happening here. Kind of a scary thought when you stop and think about what it might have been like realistically for these people. I mean, Daniel's world has just been tipped upside down. And so if there ever was a time when Daniel had to trust God and put on a brave face, it was right now. Remember, this guy's just young. He's just a, a teenager. I mean, even today, teenagers face difficult times, don't they? Many young people have life-shattering experiences. Their families might be falling apart. Their parents might be falling apart. They may face a tragedy of some kind, or they might have the challenge of just moving from one city to another or one country to another. They can be tough times, and I think as you look at the life of Daniel, it can be a, a source of encouragement for us. Because Daniel knew something really important. Daniel knew that his God was with him. And Daniel knew that his God was in control of the situation and he could be trusted no matter how devastating and difficult the situation was for him. 
And so Daniel, in that context, because of his understanding of who God was and God's character, could exercise great courage. And that's what he does. Did you notice what happens? The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't want all of the Israelites deported to Babylon at that time. He only wanted to bring a select group of young men in that first deportation. He's going to go back later on in a few years and bring a few more of the Jewish nation to Babylon, but not straight away. So Daniel was one of the the first of these young men to be taken hostage at the very beginning. And did you notice that King Nebuchadnezzar didn't want just any young man? He wanted the very best of young men so that he could train them up, possibly to put them in charge of the larger Israel group when they were sent to Babylon a few years later. And so in choosing the best of these young men, there was certain criteria that had to be met, and you read about those in verses 3 and 4 there. They had to come from upper-class families, perhaps even some kind of royal family, so we're not 100% sure, but Daniel may have been part of a family that had great significance in Judah. They had to be young, it says, although it doesn't say specifically the age, it's widely agreed that the king was looking for young males, probably teenage men, men who could easily be taught. And so we're pretty confident that Daniel was a teenager. Not only that, he had to be handsome, no blemishes. These guys had to be good looking. These men were to have no physical handicaps or defects or blemishes. They had to be well-pleasing to the eye. Handsome, like Matt Johnston. (laughs) So Daniel was a pretty boy, as it were. He didn't need to put gel or streaks in his hair. He just had natural good looks. He had to be brainy, showing intelligence. He had to be wise. He had to be endowed with understanding and discerning. This guy, these guys had to have a few clues. They were to have a high IQ, as it were. And also, they had to have a good standing in society or social standing in society who could, who could serve in the king's court. So obviously, Daniel was a young man with a likable personality. He was not a social recluse, um, but he was a confident and bold young man. And so Daniel has a lot of impressive qualities. He was young, he was handsome, he was intelligent, and full of confidence and courage. He fitted the king's criteria, and so he's enlisted. Again, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. If this was you, what would you be thinking? I mean, how would you feel if you just went through that whole process of being enlisted in this pagan king's list? How would you handle that? Now, once this group of young men has been selected, they are enrolled in what we would say is the finest Babylonian university. They are going to be instructed in Babylonian culture. They had to learn the literature. They had to learn the language. And the Babylonians were well known for their studies of astrology and um, astronomy and mathematics and architecture and mythology. And apparently they were right into legends of creation and the flood. And these young men had to also learn the Babylonian language, a language that was very unfamiliar to them. Remember, Daniel and his friends would have spoken Hebrew and possibly Aramaic. And this education was scheduled to last for three years, it says. So imagine that. You've been captured, you've been exported to Afghanistan, and you're forced to learn or have a university degree that you have no desire to even learn. You've probably got no contact with your immediate family. Perhaps only just a handful of your friends are with you. I mean, welcome to Daniel's world. That's what he was facing. And the king had a few more surprises in store for these young men. Check out their diet. They were supposed to eat the king's choice food. Now, this would have been like dining in the finest of restaurants with the most expensive menu and the finest wine. And Daniel and his friends were quite literally going to be treated like kings. And the question is, why would the king offer these young men such luxuries? And and why is it that the king wants to be educating these young men? And I'll tell you why. It is because the king of Babylon, he wants to charm them a little bit, but his real goal is to brainwash them. He wants them to forget their past, and his goal is to indoctrinate these young men with the Babylonian culture as fast as he possibly can. He's trying to get them to think and to talk and to act like Babylonians 
And to do that, he's got to squeeze the Jewishness out of them. He wants to just literally brainwash them. He wants to give them a Babylonian education. He wants to feed them the best of Babylonian food. And in chapter 3, he's going to expect them to worship the Babylonian gods. And then here, even in verse 7, we see that he gives them Babylonian names. Daniel, he changes to Belteshazzar. Hananiah became Shadrach. Mishael became Meshach. And Azariah became Abednego. And you might ask, well, why were their names changed? Well, again, it was to separate them from their Jewishness. It was like a cunning plan to try and make them forget their Jewish heritage because each of those names had a specific meaning. Daniel means Yahweh, the true God, is my judge. His new name, Belteshazzar, means Bel provides or Bel protect the king. And Bel was a pagan god to the Babylonians. And Hananiah meant the Lord is gracious, but his name was changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku, which was another pagan god. And I know Riverbend's got an Aku, right? But uh, he's not a pagan god. He's a good guy, right? But Mishael, his name meant who is like the Lord, and it was changed to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And Azariah means the Lord is my helper. And Abednego means the servant of Nebo, which was another pagan god in Babylon. Babylon. So their new names no longer identified them with the God of Israel. Instead, they reflected the pagan gods of Babylon. And by the way, let me ask you this question. Which names do you normally remember of these three guys? If you went to Sunday school like me, it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're pagan names. How bad of us. (laughs) How would you like it if your name was changed to reflect a false religion? Muhammad Johnston. (laughs) Terrible. Nick Mormon. (laughs) I mean, you, you laugh, but you wouldn't want it, would you? So King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to suck the Jewishness out of these young guys, and he wants to replace it with some Babylonian culture and worship. And so they're undergoing this brainwashing process to remove proof of the true God. And as you think about that, isn't it happening in our culture today as well? Many educational institutions and the media are doing the same thing right in our very own backyard, sucking Christianity out of our culture. As Matt said last night, you know, New Zealand has functioned under the Judeo-Christian worldview for a long time, but slowly and surely the Christian influence has been removed from our schools and from our government and from our society. And so in a sense, our Kiwi young people are being robbed of their Christian heritage. You know, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, you could just about ask any young person on the street, who is Jesus? And they'd be able to tell you because they probably learned about it in school, in Bible schools. You go to them now and you ask them who Jesus is, they have no idea. We run kids programs at our church, Benji does it, and we have a lot of kids from the community that come and they're like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Some of them have no idea about Christianity. No idea who Jesus is. Human wisdom has been elevated above God's. Science has been considered more authoritative than the Bible. Humanism and relativism and Marxism and postmodernism, all of these things are squeezing out Christian thinking. However, we can be encouraged because no matter how good the brainwashing process is in our schools and in our universities and in our culture, it is still possible to stand firm, to be courageous and not be corrupted by it all. And in verse 8 and following, notice what it says here, because we see the courage of Daniel and his mates shine through. Verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. 
And then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And so we see here that Daniel has resolved to never compromise his beliefs. He wasn't willing to give in to his convictions. He wanted to do what was right and to follow the guidelines that God had given to Joshua 800 years earlier to be strong and courageous, to follow the law of God, to not turn to the left or to the right, because that's how courageous men and women live. He could live with a name change. That really didn't violate any of his biblical principles because our names aren't important, are they? I think somebody told me this weekend that my name means lover of horses. It's not important, not to me anyway. Daniel could cope with the Babylonian educational system. It wasn't all that bad. He could filter out the garbage. You know, it's not wrong to go to a secular educational institution, but you need to learn how to filter out everything that you are taught that is rubbish. You need to have a Christian worldview to filter all that stuff. But there is one area where Daniel was not willing to compromise his convictions, and that was the area of diet or food. And so Daniel courageously chose not to eat the king's food. He made up his mind, it says, or purposed in his heart, or he resolved not to defile himself with the king's food. And you might even be saying to yourself this morning, what's so wrong with eating food in another country? I mean, many of us have been overseas and when I went to the Philippines, I ate their food. I thought it was delicious. I ate everything there that I could, except for one thing called balut, which is an egg with a little baby chicken growing in it. But when you go overseas, you don't pack your bag full of wheat bix and marmite and foxton fizz, do you? We, we enjoy what we have when we go overseas. So why did Daniel purpose in his heart not to eat the king's choice food? And the reason is, is that there were very strict laws laid down in the law of God in the Old Testament that governed what a Jew, and a, what a Jew could and could not eat. And the Old Testament gave specific dietary instructions to the Israelites. And so Daniel, being a follower of Yahweh, did not want to compromise the word of God. He knew where he could draw the line. He didn't care about his name worry too much about the university, but for him it was unbiblical to eat the king's food for a couple of reasons. The first was probably that the king's food was not kosher. In the Old Testament, food had to be prepared in a proper way, and there were clean and unclean animals. And so for a Jew, a, a Jew, for a, for a Jew, a cow was kosher. They could eat it. It was clean, but horses and camels were forbidden. They were unclean. Snapper was okay. But pig wasn't. A Jew could eat locusts. I don't know why they'd want it, but they could eat it, but not seagulls. Fish and chips were okay, but not bacon and eggs for a Jew. And so historians even tell us that pork and horse meat were delicacies for the Babylonians. And so that posed a significant problem for Daniel and for his Jewish friends, because to eat such meat would be a violation of God's law. But Daniel chose not to compromise. And there's possibly another reason why Daniel didn't want to eat the king's food, and that is that it was most likely it had been offered to the Babylonian pagan gods. And so to eat that food would be partaking in their mind in a pagan feast, which they didn't want to do. So Daniel and his friends, they abstained from eating such food. And also it says that they chose not to drink the king's wine. And Proverbs 20 tells us that the Jewish people would often dilute their wine with water because they didn't want to violate the verse in Proverbs 20 verse 1, which says, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so it was probably true that Nebuchadnezzar's wine was not diluted, it was strong, and so they didn't want to risk violating that verse. 
But think about it again with these guys. I mean, here's Daniel and here's his three friends. They're just teenagers. They're making decisions that really belied their age. They didn't have like mummy and daddy looking over their shoulder to tell them what to do. They were literally like prisoners in a foreign land surrounded by all of these pagan teachers. In a sense, the odds were against them. Surely they would compromise their beliefs and give in just once. But they didn't. None of them did. They held fast to what they believed to be true. They didn't turn to the left. They didn't turn to the right. They were courageous. As I said yesterday, they had an unwavering allegiance to the Word of God. Wouldn't it be fantastic if every Christian teenager and young adult could live like Daniel and his friends? If you are a young person, or really if you're of any age, you can be a courageous Christian in a hostile environment. It's possible. You can live an uncompromising life just like Daniel did. You, you don't have to give in to peer pressure. You don't have to give in to the worldly temptations around you. I mean, Daniel had plenty of reasons to compromise, but he didn't. He could have even said to himself, the king might kill me if I don't eat his meat. So I'll just have a bit of this roast pork. He didn't. He could have said, mum and dad aren't watching me, so I'll just compromise it a little bit. He didn't. He held fast to his convictions. Matt, you could preach this. It's all about convictions too, right? Daniel showed an incredible self-control and responsibility. I mean, he lived courageously. He lived an uncompromising life, and we can too, through the help of Christ, through the strength of the Holy Spirit, through God being with us. And in verse 12, Daniel shows his courage, really, and his boldness when he asks the chief shepherd if he and his friends can be excused from eating this food, this king's food, and drinking this wine, which was a pretty brave request. He says, please give us water and vegetables for 10 days. And then after the 10 days, give us a fitness test, give us a fat test, and give us an appearance test. And it's interesting because the chief steward was a little bit hesitant to agree as he was concerned for his own life, if the boys started to look a bit thin and started to look a bit ragged, his job and his life was on the line. Sometimes I don't think we really grasp what that culture was like. I mean, this was a culture that if you up this, upset the king with anything, he would chop your head off. You'd lose your life. That's the culture that they're going into here. You might die for doing the wrong thing, as small as it might be. Anyway, they have this 10-day trial period. It's granted to them, and so Daniel and his mates become, I guess, in a sense, instant vegetarians. And at the end of the 10 days, they were in better condition and better shape than all the others who had been dining on the king's food and drinking the king's wine. The contrast in physical condition was incredible. And some people would even say that this was a miracle because it's not easy to significantly change your body shape in 10 days without a scalpel, right? So whether it was a miracle or not, we know God was 100% behind everything that was happening to these guys. I mean, what an incredible example and testimony these guys are. I mean, some of you are a little bit like Daniel today. You're a teenager or maybe a young adult, and maybe your life is in disarray a little bit. There's been trials that you've been facing. You've been forced to do things that you don't like to do. Maybe it feels like you're in the middle of a battle zone of some kind. Well, you can still stand tall like Daniel did. You can be courageous. As I said before, remember God's with you if you're part of his family Stay close to him, embrace his word, don't turn from the left or to the right, obey it, don't compromise it, demonstrate integrity. God will help you do that, and he'll bless you for it. He'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, he'll help you through those tough times. But for all of us, as I said, the world is trying to brainwash us, and it certainly takes courage to stand up against the tidal wave of sin that is coming in our direction. We've talked about that already this weekend, and we'll talk a bit more about it tomorrow. The world is trying to tell you things like you came from monkeys, or worse, that you came from some primeval soup mixture millions of years ago. They're trying to brainwash you. They're trying to tell you that there is no absolute truth. 
Therefore, you can do what you like. You can live the way you like. That's a lie. God's word is absolute truth. It's the measure that we follow and the guide that we follow. The world tells us you don't have to respect authority. You don't have to respect your parents or your teachers or your employer employers. God says we should. We can stand firm like Daniel, as the old songwriter says, or urges us, dare to be a Daniel. And notice what God did for these young faithful men. Look at verse 17. As these four youths, as for these four youths, it says, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Notice there in verse 17 is really the key to all of this, and that is God is the one who gave them learning and understanding. He gave them the knowledge that they needed and the skills that they needed and the wisdom that they needed and the intelligence. And then at the end of their three years of training, these four young men, they come, they come and they stand before the king. And I can imagine that was, a, that was a fairly intimidating experience to stand before this guy. I mean, it was sort of like a personal interview or a job interview. They're examined, they're tested, they're quizzed, and at the end of the test, they pass with flying colors, 10 times better, it says, than all the other Babylonian young people. They were literally wiser and more skillful than everybody else, hidden shoulders above all of the other students. If they lived in America, they would say over there, they graduated summa cum laude, passed with highest distinction. That's how these guys graduated. And it was all because God was with them, enabling them, helping them, encouraging them, and even preparing them for an important role, and especially Daniel, who was going to play an important role in the next 70 years in Babylon. The difficult circumstances these young men faced, it didn't distort their view of God. They recognized that God was behind all of this, that God was sovereign, that it was his hand in everything that was happening. They were constantly aware of God's presence. We don't read of them complaining or doing anything negative. They stayed faithful. They trusted God, and they obeyed his word. They were courageous, you could say, in the king's palace. I want to take you just to another occasion in the lives of these young men. I want to take you from the king's palace to the king's party. If you want to have a quick look at that over in chapter 3, this is another example of their, their courage. This is a number of years later, maybe 15 or 20 years later. And this is when the three friends of Daniel refused to bow down to the image of the king. You remember this story? The king has made this massive image, and he invites all the citizens of Babylon to come to his party. And this is a party that he puts on in honor of himself where he expects everybody in attendance to bow down to this image. This wasn't your typical opening ceremony for a, a new monument where you might kind of have the ribbon up and you cut the ribbon and you have a little round of applause and then you finish with a cup of tea and a cake. This was far different than that. This was a, a situation that would have been described as a full-blooded worship service, worship that was directed to the king. He was the center of attention, and this is not the king Mac, Matt preached about on Friday night. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, and every person who was in attendance at this occasion was to get down on their face and bow down before this monument as a sign of loyalty to the king and a sign of allegiance to him and all that he stood for. And by the way, the penalty for failing to worship the king was the death penalty by way of fiery furnace. The rules were really simple. You either bow down or you burn up. It's your choice. And so the time comes for the ceremony to begin, and the king gets out his trumpeter, 
and he blows the trumpet to start the proceedings, and everybody is to bow down to this statue, and everybody does, except for three courageous men. What were their names? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The king didn't see their act of defiance, but he found out about it a little bit later on when some jealous guys were watching and they came along to the king and they dobbed them in and the king finds out about it then and he flies into a bit of a rage and he gets the three young men to come and stand before him. And in chapter 3, verse 14, it says, Nebuchadnezzar the king said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And he gives them one more chance. But they're not interested. The response of these three young men is astounding, isn't it? It, it's, it demonstrates their courage and their confidence in God. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, imagine being there hearing this. This is the king, the guy who could just chop your head off anytime he wants or even throw you into a furnace. And they still say this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Is that not one of the most courageous statements that you'll read in Scripture? Obedience to God was far more important to these young men. I mean, incredible courage. I mean, that is God-given boldness and bravery right there. They held fast to their convictions. They trusted in their one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. They knew God had the power and the ability to protect them if he wanted to. They knew some of the Old Testament stories, I'm sure. They understood how God had opened up the Red Sea miraculously to let his people through and escape from the Egyptian army. They'd heard about the miracles. They'd probably read the book of Isaiah, which encouraged God's people to fear not, for I am with you. They had this unrelenting awareness of the presence of God and an unwavering allegiance in the word of God. And they chose to obey God rather than the king. And their courageous action brought glory to God. And in turn, God blessed them. And he honored them. And you know how the story ends, don't you? These three men, they're thrown into the fiery furnace. God spares their life. They're joined in that furnace by a, a fourth person who's described as one like the son of the gods. Um, most conservative commentators, I think, think or believe this was what we call a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Christ who came at that moment to protect these young men. And King Nebuchadnezzar is blown away by what he sees. He sees it all before his very eyes. He witnesses this miracle, he is, he, and he gets the guys removed from the furnace, and they come out of the furnace. They're perfectly okay. It's as if they've never been in there. They're unharmed, and the king has a sudden change of theology, and he tells everybody to worship the God now of these three men. And he makes a profound statement in verse 29, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. What a great reminder that ultimately God, our God, is a rescuer. He is a deliverer. He is a savior. He doesn't always save us physically as he did in the case of these three young men. He didn't save the five English reformers who were burned to death. He could have done if he wanted to, but he doesn't always have that in his purposes. But he certainly can save us from our greatest problem, our greatest problem, our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins. And only Jesus can do that. He is the great Savior. He is the great rescuer who has made it possible for sinners like you and me to come into fellowship and relationship with our God through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we see the, the courage of these young men at the king's party I want to really briefly take you to one more event in the book of Daniel. We want to go from the king's palace to the king's party. Let me take you to the king's prison, as it were, or let's call it the king's pit. And I'm talking about the lion's den. 
and chapter 6. Daniel, as we know, followed in the footsteps of his three mates in refusing to submit to the governing authority. Remember, the king made an edict. He said, for 30 days, there will be no praying to anyone but the king. This is a different king now. And so what does Daniel do? He goes straight up to his house, and in a a display, you could say, of public disobedience to the king, he gets down on his knees, and he prays in front of the window, or in the window, as he had done religiously, day after day after day. He could have just prayed quietly in his heart at his home if he wanted to. He could have pulled the curtain if there was such a thing or moved away from the window. He didn't want to He didn't want to because he wanted to face his homeland. He could have imposed a one-month ban on prayer for himself, but he didn't. He stayed true to his convictions, even though there was the possibility of death. He did it. Another example of incredible courage. I mean, we know the outcome, don't we? He's caught praying. He's tossed into the lion's den, but God sends his angel to shut the mouths of the lions, and they don't harm him, and his life is spared. Daniel hadn't committed any crime in God's eyes. His courage motivated him to fear God more than fearing man. And as Matt so eloquently taught us, the civil government has never designed, was never de- designed by God to tell God's people when they should pray, how they should pray, when they can and when they can't gather. Warren Wesby summed it up nicely in regard to all of this. He says, when the government tries to control our conscience and tell us how to worship, we obey God rather than human beings, regardless of the cost. We have a higher law to obey. God's law. And as I've said, I'm going to talk a bit more about some of the practical ramifications of that for us in our culture in my session tomorrow. But Daniel is a great book to study because it gives us incredible hope. As I said, God is disciplining his people. He wants to purify them as a nation. He wants the best for them. He's pointing them back to his word, and ultimately he's going to point them to Christ, the Messiah, And we know, don't we, from the New Testament that Christ is our greatest hope. Christ, in a sense, is our courageous king, is he not? On a Roman cross, Jesus Christ courageously faced separation between himself and his father in order to atone for the sins of his people. Jesus courageously experienced the full fury of his father's wrath during those three hours of darkness in order to provide a rescue plan for lost sinners like you and me. And if you're getting buried under the stresses and the strains of this life, if you're feeling in your own heart the guilt of your sin and you don't know where to go and you don't know where to find hope, let me encourage you today because there is hope Even as we look at a a passage like this in Daniel and think to Jesus Christ, there is hope found in Jesus Christ alone. You need him. I need him. We all need him. And if you haven't done so, I would encourage you today to look to Jesus Christ, to believe on him, to trust in him as your savior, as your Lord, as your king. It is Jesus Christ, we know, who died and rose again for sinners like you. And the Bible tells us if we ask him to forgive us for our sins, he will forgive us and he will cleanse us. Jesus even says to those that would be struggling in life with guilt and sin and burdens, he says, come to me All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Maybe you need to cry out for salvation today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It's the day that you should turn to Christ if you haven't already. Come to Christ. Come to the cross today for salvation. Ask Jesus for a new heart to change your heart, to forgive you of your sins. Turn to him. Trust in him. Follow him. And anyone who follows Christ is blessed as I talked about yesterday, with the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
And he is able at that moment of salvation to help us and to comfort us and to encourage us and to walk with us as we go through the trials and the difficulties of life, whatever they might be for you, our God is with us in the, in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit inside us. And we've seen that this morning in the example of these young men in Babylon, three examples of courageous young men that God was with and he was helping them in the king's palace or at the king's party or even in the lion's den. And may God help us to demonstrate that same kind of courage as we seek to live for Christ. How do we do that? Well, it's really the two things that have been underpinning everything that I've been saying this weekend. And that is we are to have an unrelenting awareness of the presence of God and an unwavering allegiance to the word of God. May God help us to be those kind of people. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we are grateful for your word. We know it is true. We know it is your word. We know it is authoritative. And Lord, I just pray that you would take the truth of your word and that you would burn it into our hearts and into our minds and that we would be able to think about these things today and meditate over them and mull on them and that you would encourage us with your word, that you would continue to mature us and help us to become a little bit more like Christ today because your word has impacted our minds and our hearts. Lord, I, I pray particularly that you would help us to be courageous, more courageous than we've ever been because we want to trust you more. We want to live for you more. We want to understand your, your character and understand your presence in our life. Lord, help us to, to live those kind of lives. Lord, as I even mentioned at the beginning about this family that's grieving in Hawke's Bay, I just want to pray for them as well. And Lord, give us the courage as Christians, as Christian friends, to come alongside them and love them and to help them, to encourage them, and give us opportunities, Lord, to shine the light of the gospel even in that context with grace and tenderness and kindness. So we pray for them, Lord, help them as they grieve the loss of a precious member of their family. And Lord, again, for this day, we're so grateful. Thank you for the opportunity to come and worship and to bring praise and honor and glory to you. And Lord, that is our heart's desire to, to honor you in everything we do. Help us to do that. We pray for your glory. We pray these things in the name of your precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said.